well, you sure look good. <laughs> Looks like everybody's had a, a, a good night's sleep and a, a good breakfast this morning. Uh, let me turn some of my inner computer. Now I can hear myself better. All this technology. In the four sessions that we have left, I want to try to fit in with the theme uh, that talks about staying the course. When I read those words, the way they jump out at me is that once we are on a set course, we don't quit. We, we move ahead to the objective. But that's easier said than done. We can develop a lot of emotion. Um, we can use a lot of words, but that doesn't mean that throughout life we will stay the course. I look at almost all of you with your youthfulness, and uh, I, I'm delighted to be a part of all this because Gail and I love to be surrounded with people much younger than us. They give us vision and stimulation. But we've also lived long enough at our end of the age spectrum to realize that there were many, many people who started this venture but didn't stay the course. Things just went sour as the years went by. Life unraveled, whether it was the faith of some people which dwindled to nothing, or marriages and families that fell apart, or people who had great intentions to serve the living God in one way or the other and got very excited about it, but somewhere along the way, they fell to the side. So the percentages are that some of us in this room I don't want to sound too gloomy here, but let's just face reality. Some of us are likely not to stay the course unless we adapt or embed in ourselves some principles of deeper spiritual life, which will help us in the rough moments. Probably one of the verses that comes to my mind the fastest whenever I think of a subject like this comes in the book of Hebrews. And I want to put it up on the screen and let's see what it looks like. Everything works. The book of Hebrews is one of those stranger books of the New Testament whose author we can't be sure of. When I went to graduate school and studied theology, one of the first assignments I received in a New Testament course was, by next Friday, give me 900 words on who the author of the book of Hebrews is. So we all ran to the library, got all the old books down, shuffled through them hour after hour, and we discovered nobody knows. Uh, there are people who speculate that St. Paul could have written the book of Hebrews, but there are doubts. Other names that we might know, and still more names that most of us wouldn't know. So the authorship of the book of Hebrews is a little bit in doubt. But what's not in doubt is the intention of the writer. The writer is in a place, in a time, in that what we call the apostolic era, the generation after Jesus. And he's among people who have started well in the Christian life. But some things have gone sour. There's a lot of suffering, persecution, and fear creeps in to the body of Christ. And before long, there are men and women who started out strong, but disappear. There are leaders who looked as if they were incredibly dynamic and powerful, but one by one, they quit. So the book of Hebrews basically is written to people who are beginning to slow down in the race of life, who are frightened, and who don't know whether they can continue. So chapter 11, for example, is a long chapter in which the writer recites the names and exploits of all kinds of people that we read about in the Older Testament. We would call them the heroes of the faith. And then as he moves along in that 11th chapter, he, 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 you get the feeling he's in such a rush that he stops talking about individuals and he stops talking about groups of people all the way down through the centuries. It's a great history lesson. Then the chapter comes to an end. And what you see on the screen is the beginning of the 12th chapter. It's the writer's attempt to engage with the reader and say to him, the people in chapter 11 are still around and they're watching. Kind of makes me feel a little bit funny. They're still watching. So here's what the writer says. Since we're surrounded 
by such a great cloud of witnesses. That's all the people in chapter 11. You can imagine immediately a stadium full of people at a game of one type or another. Probably best to think of a track meet here. Since we are surrounded by such a cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. My feeling is whoever this writer is, he knows something about the Olympic races of the time. And those of you men and women who have run competitively, you can fit yourself into this sentence. You've been there, done that, so have I. The minute before the gun goes off and the race begins, you make sure you're not carrying one half ounce of baggage in any way, shape, or form that you need to. So we wear the lightest clothes and the lightest shoes. Uh, frankly, in the Olympic Games of this time, they ran in the nude. We probably wouldn't do that today. Although the way times are going, who knows? <laughs> so when the writer says, let's, let's shed everything that hinders, what he's saying is exactly what runners would do today, 2,100 years later. We take off everything that carries any needless weight to run the race. Let's, hinder, let's take off all this stuff. And then he says, let us run with perseverance, the race which is before us. Perseverance is a very important word. When our first granddaughter, Erin, was born and got old enough to talk, I began to teach her some rather monosyllabic, uh, polysyllabic words. And one of the first words I taught her was the word perseverance. We learned how to spell it. Can you imagine? Here's a two-and-a-half-year-old little girl moving up toward three, and she's already spelling perseverance. And it became a word that we used together all the time. Every chance I got, I'd introduce perseverance into her vocabulary. Now she's 22 years of age, graduating in a couple of months from William and Mary. And every once in a while, she calls her grandmother or she calls me, and she's facing a tough moment. And inevitably, into the conversation comes this word. I know, Papa, you think I need to persevere. It's become probably the most important word in her vocabulary to keep her going in the toughest days of her university life. So let's run with perseverance. Let's stay the course. And let's look on, and then he says, let us keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy and, I'm not reading this well, the joy set before him endured the cross, scorned its shame, and then when he won the race, sat down at the right hand, the most honorable position in heaven, at the right hand of God. So the writer is trying to speak to the fear of people. You're in a race. Don't stop. Watch your leader. This race is more than not a marathon-type race, a cross-country race. Maybe some of you have gone to see the wonderful movie in the last few weeks, McFarlane. If you haven't, you need to go see it. It's a great movie. But in that movie, there's a leader, because when you run the cross-country race, you enter seven players or seven runners on the team. But there's usually one outstanding runner who sets the pace for the pack. On our cross-country team, when I ran competitively, I was the number two guy, which meant that I was always looking at the leader. He was an incredible runner, except for one particular course where he had some kind of psychological block. And there was a point in the race, about six or seven miles into the race, where we had to climb a very steep hill. It was called Heartbreak Hill, for obvious reasons. And our leader somehow panicked when he saw that one hill of all the courses we ran in the northeast of this country. This one hill somehow just collapsed in his mind. And when he reached the hill, you, you really were not sure he was going to keep on running. And I have vivid memories of a day in an important race where he just quit. And that put me into the position of being the leader. But he was the guy we fixed our eyes upon. In the same way the writer is saying, there's a race going. There's a number one person. His name is Jesus. He's finished the race. Now you better finish the race in the same way so that you can come to the right hand of God and receive the recognition that he is receiving. That's a great passage of Scripture. And if you're an athlete, it's one to consider adopting has a life-centered verse to keep going back to again and again and again when times get tough. When opposition rises, when you have hard questions you can't answer, look unto Jesus, the author 
and the completer of our faith, who endured the cross, scorned the humiliation of that experience, and having finished the race crossing the finish line, now sits at the right hand of God. Now that's my little pep talk from the scripture. But I want to go beyond that and bring it down to where the rubber meets the road. And I want to ask the question, what does this mean? I would said last night that this conference reminds me of a conference that I went to in my college years. I went to any number of them. Usually, may I be frank with you, uh, I went because I wanted to meet girls. Uh, nobody else did this, of course. You would, none of you would ever do this. But in my day and age, it was, it was a flaw, and I had to live with it. But you'd go for reasons like that. And you'd get there, and there'd be some dazzling speaker. In this conference, there's an exception to that. Some dazzling speaker, great jokes, powerful stories. And inevitably, we would all get persuaded. And at the end of the meetings, we'd raise our hands. Or we'd come forward down the aisle and kneel here because we wanted to make a new dedication of our lives to, to Jesus. We really wanted our Christian lives to work. And my bet is that every one of you do too. But as I look back on those days, there was a frustration. Because what we were too often being called to was not a lifelong strategy of staying the course. We were really being called to have a momentary emotional experience, to feel good, to feel right about things. But it had no guarantee in it that what I raised my hand to or came forward to in that moment was going to last more than 24 hours. And all too often, I found myself a week later back at the campus. And I was the same old Gordon that I'd been before I left for the conference. You do that too many times. And you get very discouraged about what this faith is all about anyway. How do I keep on growing? How do I make sure that my faith really helps me to stay the course? That as the years go by, I become a more powerful, effective woman or man of God. It's taken me a lifetime to almost figure this out and understand it. But the answer to the depth of my faith journey to staying the course was frankly not some emotional experience that lasted for a few hours, but was to bring an underlying structure to my faith into which Jesus could come and make a difference. And that's what these four sessions are about. I want to talk about the structure of faith. Some of you may be familiar with the name Alvin Toffler, not a Christian, wrote more or less in the 1980s, 90s, and in the early part of the 2000s. He was what we called then, I don't know whether we still do, a futurist, brilliant, brilliant, social observer of the times and of history. And Toffler says this in one of his books. Crawl into this quote and see if you can understand where he's going with it. I have one sentence I want to highlight. Toffler says, most people surveying the world around them today see only chaos. Sometimes it becomes a difficulty to even want to turn on the news because there's rarely any good news these days. These kind of people suffer a sense of personal powerlessness and pointlessness. Ever been there? I have. For a moment, you just get captured by the overwhelming sense that everything's unraveling and going wrong. You can get real gloomy, real pessimistic. Everything seems to be chaos. And then Toffler says this. This is not spoken as a Christian, but it's a Christian statement. Individuals need life structure. A life lacking in comprehensive structure is an aimless wreck. If Toffler were here, I'd love to ask him, Alvin, what's your life structure? How does it work? Are there many life structures? And the answer is probably yes. It depends on what your goal or your aim is. Do I want a life of glamour, a life of wealth, a life of pleasure? Do I want to have a life where I'm one of those people who goes around the world doing good to unfortunate people? There are all kinds of possibilities. What is my life structure. 
as I've gone back and through forth through the pages of the scripture, I've begun to discern a so-called life structure, a deep interior framework that is in the heart and through which we communicate and are communicated to from God. So I want to take these sections and I want to offer you some idea of what life structure is all about. Let me start by, again, quoting a person who's not a Christian, but a man who was a remarkable theologian in the Jewish community. He died in 1972. His name is Abraham Joshua Heschel. I have most of his books at home and have read through them, and I have found them to be very instructive about the deeper thoughts of the faith life. Here's Heschel. What's, that's the wrong thing. I, let me try again. There it is. Heschel says one thing that sets man apart from animals is a boundless, unpredictable, unpredictable capacity for the development of an inner universe. Look at that phrase for just a moment, inner universe. We are people who, when we talk about spiritual things, we often talk about my heart, or we talk about my soul. These two words get kicked around all the time in Christian conversation. What do you know about your heart? What do you know about your soul? Probably one of the best things any of us could say at that particular moment is, well, all I know is that somewhere in me, I can't geographically locate it, is something that in spiritual language we call the center of life. I do have a heart. It's right here. I, I think it's here. But that's a different kind of heart. And when people started using the word heart a few centuries ago, what they were simply talking about is, what is at the core of your life? Same way with the word soul. It's a word that's been employed for thousands of years to describe the mysterious Sir Edward Elgar, a British composer of symph symphony a hundred years ago, used to talk about the inside of the inside. Now comes Heschel. And he talks about the inner universe. Let me tell you what I think I hear him saying. And I hope I'm not going to bore you in this, but you will find this as the years go by to be very important conversation. The inner universe. We are very well acquainted for the first time, thanks to technology, with what outer space is all about. In my lifetime, outer space has expanded by a factor of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of time. And now we're discovering that outer space has been in motion for maybe 13 to 15 billion years, whatever that means. All we know is that somehow there is an outer space which is so big, so great, that we do not have language to comprehend it or even to communicate it. It's just out there. And the billions of stars and galaxies just awe anybody who gets interested in this subject. Now what if, and here's Heschel, what if every one of us in this room has an inner universe or an inner space which is as large in its dimension as outer space? Think about that for a moment. It'll drive you nuts. <laughs> that deep within every one of us is space that is so large, so deep, so broad, so wide. Now let me go another step. What if you and I only know the first 12 feet of our inner space? All we know is that there are things deep within each of us which we can't even give words to. Every once in a while, we get impulses and messages and senses of things inside of us. And sometimes we say to ourselves, where in the world did that come from? There's this incredible space within us. And I will venture, because I'm a Christian and a biblical person, that the only one who knows the fullness of my inner space and yours is God himself. Imagine Jesus taking you and me on a trip through our own inner space. And Jesus pointing out things within us that we've never thought about before or thought about. And in many places, covering them with his mercy and his grace. Pointing out to us the places we're broken that we can't even describe with English words. 
This is a very strong part of biblical faith. What is inside? And Toffler says, from his point, from his intuition, somebody's got to bring structure to this space, or for many of us, it's going to drive us crazy. Having said that, let me move ahead. Because here's the way I think inner space might work, or to use Heschel's words, the inner universe. My inner universe and yours, I'm going to suggest to you, is first of all, part memory. God has given every one of us in this room an incredible facility of the mind and heart that we call with the word memory. It's our ability to go backwards. Let me really startle you with this. I would suggest to you, crazy as it sounds, that your memory and my memory, first of all, begins at the moment of conception. That there are things in our memory in those eight or nine months we spent in our mother's womb. They're there. They're buried deep within us. We may not know how to describe it, explain it, understand it, but it's there. And then memory moves on to the day we were born and came under the love and the affection and the care of our parents. And then as our peer group moved into space in the next years and we gathered friends who began to influence us. Then as we made decisions through junior high school and high school and now into the university and here you are on the cusp of many, many years of adulthood. And all of this is founded upon a memory. A memory which could be likened, for example, to a library of books and each book title is of a person, of an experience that we've had in the past, and the book lies there, and every once in a while, without our realizing it, one of those books jumps off the shelf, opens itself up, and affects what we're doing at this very moment. Have you ever asked yourself why some people irritate you and you can't figure it out? Is it possible your memory is in motion, and it's comparing this person to somebody else 10 years ago who really irritated you, and you make a match? The memory's always doing that kind of a thing. The memory remembers times when we have been humiliated, when we've been defeated, when we've been disappointed, when we've been badly hurt, when we failed, when we experienced defeat. The memory also records the best of times. Moments when we felt loved, when we loved, when we achieved something that was a real challenge, when people affirmed us and praised us. The memory is all full of good stuff like that. Now, the memory is faulty, and it loves over a period of time to confuse things and to embellish things so that our memory will say of some things, they're worse than they were, or they're better than they were. I've told you already that, to some extent, in the years going by, I was an athlete. And whenever I talk about track and cross country, there's always someone who comes up afterward and says, so what did you run the 800 in? and you know immediately what's going on. They want to compare times. Am I better than you, or are you better than me? What I discovered is that my memory sized people up when I was much younger, and when I could figure out what time they ran, I always ran a little bit faster. <laughs> One day I discovered I'd set the world record in the 400 by nine seconds. <laughs> so the memory is not totally reliable, but it's active. Now here's my point in this. The Bible deals a lot with the subject of memory. And the inference which the Bible gives to us, hear this carefully because if, if you don't hear Gordon put it out, you're going to hear it somewhere along the line, maybe in a hurtful or painful way. If I do not bring my memory to repair in the places where it's hurting, where it's harboring things that are difficult for me. If I am not constantly repairing my memory, it's going to rise up and bite me over and over and over again. I said this is not just psychobabble. This is very biblical. Let me give you four examples of people who had to deal with memory. Whoops. I'm not getting it. I don't know why, so I'll just forget about it for a moment. The Bible gives us four stories in the Older Testament that would be good for you to know. The first is the story of Joseph of Egypt. Joseph, as a young boy who has 11 or 12 brothers who can't stand him 
because he comes off as being so much better than they. And one day they see him out in the fields by himself where the father is not around. And they grab him, they bind him, they throw him into a pit. And the decision is, we're going to kill this guy. And then one of the brothers intervenes and says, let's not kill him. Let's sell him to a caravan that's coming a long way. So Joseph is carted off into Egypt as a slave. Those of us who know Joseph's story know that he ended up in the home of a, uh, an Egyptian official by the name of Potiphar. He's the victim of an intense or an, uh, an attempted seduction from Potiphar's wife. He's falsely accused of rape. He ends up in jail. In every one of these situations, he always rises to the top like an old bottle of milk where the cream rose to the top. That's Joseph. He always, wherever he is, always becomes best. And this leads, strangely enough, and when we were children telling this story, to the thrilling moment where Joseph is taken out of jail and comes before the Pharaoh of Egypt and is given the number two position to deal with the economic problems that Egypt has. Six chapters. Wonderful, wonderful story. But there are six more chapters that a lot of people don't really think much about. And yet they may be the most important chapters. They are the chapters where Joseph deals with the issue of memory. Because one day his brothers, now many years later, come to Egypt to get food. And when Joseph and they encounter each other, there's a moment when the brothers don't know that Joseph knows who they are. And Joseph has to withdraw. And at least three times we read about Joseph weeping, retching, sobbing so loudly, so violently that they can hear him down the street. This is no little sweet moment of tears. This is a convulsive moment where this man comes to a crisis. And in that culture, he had every reason and he had the power if he wanted, to have those brothers executed. Could have done it easily, just with the flip of a hand or with a word. The problem Joseph is living with, some of you will know exactly what I'm talking about when I use this word. The problem Joseph is dealing with is what we call in modern times abandonment. His mind, his memory has never repaired never resolved, never forgotten the day he was separated from his family, from his father, and sold into a strange country, and he's had to live the last 10 or 15 years totally outside of his own culture. You don't think that did a job on him? That he didn't have the temptation to be hateful toward his brothers? And now he had them just where he wanted them? And for six chapters, you read the story of Joseph dealing with, with his memory. And it comes to its climax in the last chapter of the book of Genesis. When Joseph says to his brothers, who, by the way, have had their own problems with memory, because when they realize who Joseph is, the guilt level in them goes skyward. And they're saying to each other, he's going to kill us. He's going to take his vengeance. We have this coming. We deserved it. They begin to blame each other for what had happened years ago. So you have the brothers over here and you have Joseph over here. These guys expecting to be executed. Joseph stepping finally into the presence of his brothers and saying something like this. Don't be afraid. What you did to me, you meant for evil. But God meant it for good. For the saving of many people in this day. And in those words, what Joseph is saying to his brothers is, I've repaired my memory. I've forgiven you. It's going to be okay. I would bet if we all had the time to really tell our stories in this room, that many of us have catastrophic experiences in our lives where we struggle to forgive someone. I had a moment like that in my younger years, working on a team of young men who were all really interested in ministry, and my job was to work with them. And there came a moment when one of those men did something that, how do I say this, just really, really hurted me. It hurt me so badly, and I could not get over it. 
for weeks. Feelings of resentment and vengeance just curdled and came up inside of me. And every idle moment, day or night, my mind was fixated on this man and what he had done to me. Then one Friday morning, I was on an airplane headed to another part of the country to uh, preach the Bible to a congregation that didn't have a pastor. And they'd asked me to just come for the weekend and be their preacher du jour. And I'm on this plane, and it's almost empty. I'm seated in the back. I'm thinking about my favorite subject, how I could get back at this guy. And this conversation starts, and, and I have this feeling it was a conversation with heaven. I remember the words that went back and forth, something like this. So where are you going today? Well, I'm going to such and such a place. What are you going to do when you get there? Well, I'm going to preach the Bible. What are you going to preach about? I'm going to preach about the love of Christ. And then this question. How can you preach about the love of Christ when your heart is filled with such hate? Well, I don't know what to do about it. Well, you could try forgiving. I don't know how to forgive. I've never faced a moment like this before. I can't get rid of these feelings. Ask me. God, in the name of Jesus, give me the ability to forgive this person. Now you're going to think what I tell you now is a little bit weird. But in the next moments, I felt as if there was a hole being cut right here in my chest. And when the hole was fully cut, out of the hole there began to flow something like black syrup or mass of, uh, maple syrup or something. It took a long time for this hole to be emptied of that stuff. And it stopped finally as the plane touched the ground in this distant city. I remember getting off that plane and feeling as if I was 50 pounds lighter. And when I came on Sunday morning to preach to that congregation, I preached with a freedom, with a power, with an ability. I'm only 28 years of age at this point. But it was exceptional the way the moment came and the way it just seemed like God's spirit fell upon me and allowed me to accomplish things that were far beyond my experience or my age. And the whole day went like that. And late in the evening when it was time for the church doors to be shut, the leadership of the church came to me and they said, could we talk to you? Sure. You're the kind of young man that we need as a pastor. We thought we were looking for a much older man. But the way you carried yourself today, the way you spoke to us, the way you cared for us, we're saying to ourselves, this is the man we need to have as our pastor. Twelve weeks later, Gail, our firstborn son, and I moved into the house the church provided, and we began our first six years of pastoral ministry after theology school had ended. It leads me to this question this morning. Where would I have ended up? Where would I have gone if I'd not had that experience on the plane and finally learned how to forgive? That was Joseph's problem. He succeeded. And because he did, I was able to succeed. Israel had a problem with forgiveness. It had 44, excuse me, 400 years of living in slavery. Do you know what slavery does to people as the generations layer upon layer? It destroys the human spirit. It creates people who struggle to know how to make decisions. Discipline goes out the door. People become angry and rebellious. And Israel had 400 years of that kind of living to cope with. And the whole Older Testament, you could say, is really about God helping the people of Israel to repair their memory. Now let me bring this to its little basic conclusion as a thought. I'm going to bet that there are some of us in this room who have people to forgive too. A father who somehow mistreated us. A mother we never made it with. A friend who betrayed us or cheated on us. Something that happened back there that has rested within our hearts all these years. Has a grudge, as a resentment, has a point of hate 
until we learn to forgive yesterday and today, we will never have the structure of faith that we need. There's a second way we repair the memory. The Bible gives us not only the word forgive, but it gives us the word repent. Repent is an ancient word which begins not as a religious word. It's a word that describes what's happening when you're out on the desert and suddenly you realize you don't know where you're going. A lot of men have this problem. They don't like to admit that they're lost. Gail and I are in the car one night. We're driving to a place we'd never been to before. She suddenly realizes I've made three right turns in a row. And she says, what she probably should not say, but she says, are you lost? And I say, no, I'm not lost. Well, you better stop and ask. So I stop by this police car and I say to the policeman, sir, I'm really, really, really lost. He says, and you call yourself a man? <laughs> Repentance is the admission that I have done something that is harmful to you or to God. Forgiveness is what I do when I forgive you for something you've done to me. Repentance is when I admit that I've done something to you and I ask for your forgiveness. Forgive, repentance is not just one of those big, big things you do every once in a while when you've really dropped a big ball in life. Repentance is something we do every day. We acknowledge to God every day, we're broken people. We need to be put back together again. This is the work of Jesus on the cross, to hear the quiet words of repentance. Lord, today I offended that person. I was inattentive to such a, to such a person. I was mean. I, I allowed my mind to stretch its way into thoughts I shouldn't be thinking. I acknowledge these things. I put them in plain English. I ask, Lord, for your forgiveness. I know a lot about repentance. There have been any number of times in my life when I really had to face up to the fact that what I had done had been terribly painful or harmful to other people. Maybe the worst moment in my life came almost 30 years ago when in a moment that I can't explain, I broke the vows of our marriage. It's a very difficult thing to talk about especially with people you don't know real well personally. But that moment marked Gail and me. We had to deal with it. Gail had to deal with it with the question, can I forgive? I had to deal with the question, how do I repent? How do I acknowledge the sorrow of something I never thought was possible in my life? And we came through that moment. Those of you who go to hear Gail talk about forgiveness this afternoon, we'll hear her refer to this particular moment. But the ability to repent and the ability to forgive are two of the ways the Bible gives us of repairing things which have happened in the past. The Bible gives us a third event. It's called gratitude. This one sounds so schlocky. But if you get into the word and you take it seriously, you will discover the Bible is constantly calling people like you and me to thanksgiving. To give thanks in every exchange is to put value upon something. You do something for me, I say thank you. What I'm saying to you is what you have done for me has a value, and this is the value, and it comes in the word thank you. Thank you is not some just cultural exchange. It has deep significance. And a man or a woman of God learns to walk all the way through life constantly saying thank you to people for the value that they have given to us. Things many times that they do for us that we could not do for ourselves. I sometimes think I married the most thankful human being in all the world. From the day we got married, I became used to the fact that day after day, this wife of mine was constantly sending thank you notes to people who had crossed her path day by day. If we had all the money in our family that Gail has spent on postage stamps, envelopes, and Hallmark cars, I, I would be one of the wealthiest guys around, I suspect. 
I, on the other hand, grew up as a young man being very unthankful. I just took people for granted. I took things that happened as, well, that's the way things go. I had to learn how to recognize all the way through the day the handiwork of God through other people and to acknowledge that handiwork by saying thank you. Don't go through life as an unthankful person. It'll clog up your memory. It will distance you from the kind of man or woman that God wants you to be. The Bible gives us a fourth way to deal with a memory in need of repair. It says, always try to find the meaning of each event as the day goes by. And then allow that meaning to layer upon layer within you. Because layer upon layer, that kind of stuff becomes what we call wisdom. One of the reasons I know people see me as an old guy these days is that their language toward me has changed. It used to be that people would say, well, you're a real visionary. Or, boy, you, you really are involved in a lot of things, aren't you? Now what they say is, oh, you're so wise. <laughs> Which they say to anybody with hair my color. <laughs> but what they mean by that is that you've come to a point in your life that when you open your mouth, you tell us things we can't pick up from younger people. Wisdom is something that seems to be most in the possession of older people. Why? Because they've had the years to accumulate the experiences, layer upon layer, how things work, how they don't work, where things fall apart, what you should stay away from, where you can get into trouble. And this becomes the wisdom that's so valuable in the second half of life. The Bible keeps telling us in various ways. Always look through each day and ask, what do these things mean? And how will they come to make you understand the tomorrows of your life better? Some 40 plus years ago, Gail and I started keeping journals. Hardly a day goes by that we don't stop for a short while early in the morning and write in our computers all of the events that happened of significance in the day before. We're all writing about our, we're both already writing about our time at Hume Lake. People we've met, things that people have said to us. Why do we do this? Because it's part of the accumulation of wisdom. Our world today does not have a lot of wise people. It has a lot of people who are knowledgeable, who are accumulating data, and they understand how things work technologically and scientifically and so on and so forth. But only a few people who, when they speak, we say to ourselves, that's a wise woman. That's a wise man. What they're saying can be trusted. They have the insight, the discernment that I need. You want to put toward the top of your lifelong bucket list the quest to be a wise person. And that takes daily discipline. Looking into the events of each day and asking, what can I learn? How can I use this? Who will benefit from this particular experience? I've learned to look at my failures and my defeats as quickly as I would ever look at my successes and achievements. Because in my failures and in my defeats, there is so much, so much to be learned if you're willing to face up to what has happened. Unfortunately, I know too many people who over the years live in denial. Pass the blame out. Find excuses. And what I've discovered is when you pass the blame and you find the excuses, you never become wise. Now one final point. I've talked about forgiveness, repentance, gratitude, wisdom. The fifth point I want to make that the Bible gives to us is as life goes on and our memory expands, tell the story. What people around us need to hear more often than almost anything else is the things that God has taught each of us in building the kind of men and women that we are becoming. Every one of you in this room has a story to tell. The story of your childhood, the story of your teen years, 
the story of your family, the story of your friends, the stories of events that God has brought into your life and from which you have learned so much, the story of your failures, and on occasion, when appropriate, the stories of your achievements. Tell the story. Share your life openly with people. And when you do, they will love you for it. Because from you, they will gather learning. And most supremely, they may begin to discover the grace and the work of Jesus because of you. If you just quote Bible verses, if you just talk about the high points in life where you have been eminently successful, very, very few people will be interested. But if you're willing to break open your life and show where the grace and the mercy and the love of Jesus was so important, people will endear themselves to you and will find you to be a never-ending fountain of grace that they can drink from as they strengthen their lives because they're working with you out of your repaired memory. David was a man with a great memory. When he was a boy, he was in effect rejected by his family. He didn't do well with his father. When he became a king, he had some great moments. There was a moment when he was guilty of adultery and another time when he was guilty of murder. David has a very broken life. But God uses him. God uses him to give us a huge percentage of the Psalms of the Older Testament. And in those Psalms, we read the journal of a man who knew what it was like to be truly broken, but who also discovered in those deepest, darkest moments how gracious and merciful God could be. Any of us who have walked the track of David understand what he's trying to say. And as the years go by, we too try to work out of our brokenness so that people will see in us not some kind of celebrity, but they will see the figure of Jesus behind it all, who has repaired our memories through his work on the cross and made us new people. You and I will never grow as Christians. We will never have a structure of faith that's apt and adaptable. If all we do on occasion is raise our hands or kneel in a moment of emotion, but if we begin to recognize we have a memory and God wants us to work out of it whenever possible, then we're on our way to staying the course. Now what I'd like to do is I'd like to pause for just a moment and I'm going to invite Gail to come up to the front and join me for a few moments so that we can talk about what I've just said and see if Gail can tease out with me anything that needs further explanation or emphasis. So here's your seat. Come on up. Can you get up on that tall stool? I can. Okay. Is that mic live? It is. Okay. So good to have you up here. Thank you. Now I feel less than whole. I just want to say I think this is a, always amazes me the courageous way that you can speak about the lowest place in your life and just makes me very thankful because I've lived it and I know who you are and that you didn't say of David that no place in the New Testament do you see David's sin. You can't find it there. Because in God's great providence, the Holy Spirit's way of doing things, he's covered David's sin because David is only mentioned as a man after God's own heart. Mm. And that's where I have seen you. That's how I experience you. But I thank you for being vulnerable before these young men and women when it would be very easy for you to say, that was 30-some years ago. So thank you. Thank you for saying that. So what have you been hearing for the last half hour? Does it make sense in any way? Well, I, I think it is so vital. If you go back to Joseph, 
the thing that amazes me is while Joseph had the 28 years between the time his brothers dumped him to the time when he saw the brothers again, he's working on repairing his past and forgiving all these things that have happened to him. Not wasting the time or the experiences, whereas the brothers have haunted memories that never are healed until he frees them. So a question is, where are we when it comes to those haunted memories that we have? Is there a root of bitterness like what you experienced in our earliest years of marriage that has gone 28 more years? Just imagine where you and I would be today if you well, would we, allow that root of bitterness to go. We certainly would not be here. No. And it, it could be. I mean, I'm just reaching here to make a point that if we had not been able to resolve some of those issues, we wouldn't be together. Could be. And, uh, and that's what happens because people allow these events in their lives to just get covered over, like putting them under a rug. And then five, eight, nine years later, they all accumulate and they, they come back to bite you. And things that you felt were so precious and that you wanted so badly, now you've lost because back there you didn't do your spiritual homework. And this generation particularly concerns me because <coughs> we are not any longer looking face to face. We're, we're communicating through our hands and our fingers and not looking at each other in the eye. And we have to get back to looking at each other in the eye and telling each other the truth. Or we are not going to be able to make Make, make relationships work in, over the long haul. It, it's interesting you say that because I, I, I was going to say, and I, I forgot to in, in the earlier talk, that in our generation, we were obsessed with the past and the future. Uh, we, we talked a lot, you know, we were all harmed deeply by the Depression and World War II. That deeply scarred and touched our lives the way we think uh, and the way we acted. Then we were always worried about the future. Uh, what would be the consequences if we didn't do this and didn't do that? And we were always working toward the future. Now you have a generation, it seems to us, um, that really doesn't want to talk a lot about the past and really isn't that interested about the future, but is really, really focused on the sensations of today. My pleasure, uh, my fun, uh, the experiences of today uh, even at the risk that I won't even ask myself if these decisions have consequences. So now we have a new generation that's just, in one, in one way or the other, the opposite of who you and I were. We may not have really engaged in the present as much as we should have because we were so caught up with the past and the future. Now we have a generation that's just the mirror and going in another direction for different reasons. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I, I don't know how, what one does about that, except to look at it for what it is and say we, we've all, got, all of us have to look at the past, present, and future in our lives in order to be healthy people. There's a corrective that's needed. So let me pick up one subject because we've just got a few more minutes. I mentioned that you and I do journaling as an mm -hmm. attempt to rework our past and make sure that we've found the grace and the mercy of Christ uh, as the days go by. Talk a little bit about your life as a journalist. Well, I owe it to you because I am by nature a doer. I am a person who likes action. And so getting me to sit down and write it for, in my journal for 20 minutes or for an hour was just not what I was going to do when I was younger. And I watched you as an introvert, love those quiet times, and I watched what produced in you in the sense of understanding why you did what you did yesterday, and it benefited me. But I think what happened in my life was I had enough pain. When my sister-in-law committed suicide and left 10 children, and my brother committed suicide by alcohol at the age of 33, I had to make sense of it. And having the picture of you sitting quietly and typing in your journal and coming out with a sense of sanity, of ordered life. That's where I threw a thrust. Start doing this yourself, Gail. But I was almost 16 years after you started it. So I've tried with women to say, 
you can't push people to do journaling. You have to wait until the opportunity and the pain gets enough that you have to figure it out, get all the confusion out of your head and put it on paper. Is it almost always started with pain? Well, it was for me because I, I just had, I, I'd had so much confusion about why all this was happening. And uh, if you, the other good thing about it, and that because I could say anything to you and you heard me and you drew me out, you have to hear yourself speak the truth in order to heal yourself. That's now, now run that through the ringer again. We heal ourselves by hearing ourselves say the truth about ourselves in a situation. As long as it's going around our, on the inside of us, in our head, and, and causing confusion, we can't have a way of dealing with it. But when we put it in our mouths and give it to another person and watch their reaction and perhaps hear for the first time how, oh, I can manage that. I just listened to what I've got on my plate. God and I can manage that. That's the beginning of healing. So if I was to look over your shoulder <coughs> in those early morning moments when you are working in your journal, what would I see? Well, I'm, I'm as happy as a clam. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, my, uh, my little guru who teaches me on my computer, she said I need to have a password for my journal. What is the word that comes to your mind when you think of your journal? And I said, sanity, <coughs> which is true. And so I sit there and I am, I'm smiling, I'm grateful. Sometimes I have to be very, uh, I'll come to you and say, I just had this thought about yesterday because we share the things that God is doing. But my journal is a leveler in my life where I meet God, I'm honest about Gail, and I repent, which you also taught me to do, repentance. When I open my journal each morning, I like to list the things that happened the day before for which I'm really grateful, lessons learned, what has the Bible said that morning. I might even copy in a verse or two. What is my, where is my reading taking to me that day? You know, is there a line or two by the author that I want to particularly remember and go back to? Um, are there things that I'm hopeful in this particular day that I, I anticipate God may make happen. Mm -hmm. So between the two of us, um, there's a lot of stuff there, isn't there? Yeah, I don't think we'll ever do anything with it, but it's, it, it's there if our children want to see it. Um, They'll have to build an extra room on their homes to store all this <laughs> stuff. <laughs> but thank you for the journey that you have brought me to this yeah. day. Thank you very much. Well, that's enough for the morning, and you can already see on the screen where we're going to go tonight on the subject of intentionality. Let me introduce it and save myself just a moment of time. If memory takes us backwards, then God has also given to each of us a second remarkable capability, and that's to be intentional about the future. Memory looks backwards. Intentionality looks forward. Gail and I have a very, very long memory. You'd have to have a long memory for 75 years of life. Your memories, relatively speaking, are shorter. But we have relatively a short time of intentionality. Statistically, we know that we're not long for this world. You have many, many years. So your intentionality period is longer while ours is shorter. I hope the contrast seems clear. So tonight when we get together, the question will become not what happens when we look backwards into life, but what happens when we look forwards? What are the things that God is calling us to each day that give us a forward look in staying the course? And uh, we'll look forward to being with you tonight on this particular subject. Let's pray for these people. Father, we thank you that you are vitally involved in every thought we think that you go the heights with us you go to the depths and you surround us with your love and your care and your hope for our future thank you for these young men and women who are so eager to learn follow hard after you and father we're thankful that there was a moment in history when there was a cross and our savior died for us there 
and in doing so, he gave the power for memories to be healed, for things to be put away out of sight, for a whole new future to happen each day. And I pray that as we're at this beautiful place in the California mountains, that you will help us not only to have fun and not only to enjoy the friendship of one another, but to appreciate the ways you want to touch and mark our lives. We go now to enjoy food, and we thank you for people who have spent a whole morning thinking about us. Would you make us think origins? Who gave me this food? First from your hand, Lord, and then from these who care. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. God be with you.